Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So first an update uh, from yesterday. Uh, there was, I, I paraphrased the quote uh, that science marches on funeral by funeral. Uh, here's the exact quote as emailed to me this afternoon. Um, it comes from Max Planck. A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. And uh, paraphrasing, truth never triumphs, its opponents just die out, or the version I gave, thanks to Paul Soss for sending me that. Okay, so uh, I'm gonna, much of what I'm gonna talk about today um, comes from my uh, book Nudge, which we'll get to in a little while, um, that was written with Cass Sunstein. Um, uh, Cass and I um, try to make the distinction between the people that economists model and the rest of us. And to shorten it, we call um, the agents in economic models econs and real people humans. Now, how do they differ? Well, e economists r really assume that economists are as smart as they are, or really as smart as they think they are. And, uh, and the norm in economics has become that, you know, suppose some old guy like me writes down some model of rational behavior, and then a younger guy like Matthew comes along, and, but a rational version of Matthew, and, and, and uh, in every sense, and, then, and thinks of a way in which the agents in my model could be smarter, then the norm has become that his model is better than my model. And as a result, the agents in, in economic models have gotten smarter and smarter over the last 60 years, and we haven't. And, and so as a result, there's this been this growing divide that probably peaked in the 1980s of the, when hyper-rational models be, were very much in fashion. And so the agents are really, really smart, and we're just sort of plodding along. Now, um, thanks to uh, neuroeconomics, we've been able to establish the actual truth. <laughs> now, um, so there you go. That's a visual image of bounded rationality. I, I was trying to get this, um, so that's the last thing I'm going to say about neuroeconomics. Um, now, uh, the, the second uh, way in which economists differ, uh, econs differ from humans is um, humans have self-control problems. Homer, when told by a gun shop owner that there's a five-day waiting period for a gun he wants to buy to kill somebody, says, five days, but I'm mad now. And uh, now, 
uh, Matthew uh, and his colleagues have called this combination of no self-control and no self-insight about one's self-control, naivete. And um, so this is like the pathologically uh, uncontrolled person who has no clue. And uh, actual humans are slightly more with it than that, and they lie somewhere between this pathetic creature and a very smart version of this that uh, uh, David Labson has suggested of sophistication. And the, the people I'm going to talk about today are neither as dumb as Homer Simpson or as smart as David Labson, uh, but there's a big gap uh, between those two. Um, the third way in which humans differ from uh, econs is that humans are nicer. Um, so econs are unboundedly unscrupulous. And they will, any interaction between a human and an econ is an opportunity for strategy. And they will take advantage of it if they think it's in their long-run interest. Um, now, uh, in Matthew's honor, I'm bringing my empirical evidence of this. This is the fruit stand in Ithaca. Uh, it's selling rhubarb. Uh, you can't quite see the rhubarb, but you can see the sign, and you can see the box with the lock. This is really my model of human nature, which is that there are enough people who will put money in that it's worthwhile for the farmer to put the rhubarb out, but there's also enough econs around who will take the money if you just leave it lying there. Um, so finally, we get to markets. And behavioral economics is a branch of economics, a way of doing economics, not a branch of psychology, precisely because what we think about is what happens when you put humans into markets, and especially if there are some econs around trying to take advantage of them. Now, um, the, uh, the st standard assumption about uh, markets is that they are efficient. And here's my proof that they're not. Now, th this is a picture that was taken in Buenos Aires. And th now, there are some of my finance colleagues, like uh, Mark Rubenstein, who's sitting up in the front of the room, will probably say, no, this is not a violation of the law of one price, which is the fundamental driver of finance theory. No, this is price discrimination against stupid Americans who don't know the Spanish for orange juice. Now, notice they have to be so stupid that they don't see that the two pictures are identical, <laughs> which kind of violates the unlimited rationality hypothesis. So you have to give up one or the other. And uh, now, Matthew would prefer that uh, this I would stop my discussion of finance at this point. Um, but some, some think this isn't completely convincing. 
So uh, let me spend five minutes uh, on something more convincing. So um, the most efficient place where we would expect markets to work best is financial markets. Because the transactions costs are low, essentially zero in, in, in most cases, and the stakes are very large. So if anything is going to work like a textbook model, it should be the New York Stock Exchange. So I got interested in finance precisely because of this. And it, uh, it's sort of the New York, New York model. You know, that if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. So my feeling was if we could make some inroads in finance, then it would sort of diffuse this idea that we're only about toy problems in laboratories. So I was helped with uh, one of my first students, I think, in fact, my first student, uh, a Belgian named Werner de Bont, and uh, he wanted to do finance. So I said, okay, uh, you know, why not? And um, so we wanted to test one principle of financial economics, which is that you can't predict the future from the past. So it, prices, markets can't be efficient if this is violated, because otherwise you could make tons of money. Now, uh, how, at, this, at one point, Michael Jensen, a leading proponent of market efficiency at this time, he's now become a born-again something else, um, uh, Jensen said, famously, that the efficient market hypothesis is the best established fact in social science. Now, it helped he hadn't read much social science at that time. But anyway, that was his claim. And um, so here's what Werner and I did. I mean, this is lazy finance. Uh, we, we, especially since Werner did all the programming, we, we uh, formed portfolios of the 50 biggest losers over a five-year period, and then the 50 biggest winners. And then we tracked those portfolios for the next five years. How would they do? Now, the efficient market hypothesis says they should do the same. Because remember, you can't predict the future from the past. So we should just see there should be indistinguishable. So here's what we find. This is averaging over many years of data. Uh, we see that losers do very well. They uh, outperform the market by about 30%. The winners do poorly, underperform by about 10%. And after five years, the difference is about 40%. Uh, now, there's some funny things in this chart. You notice the losers are doing all their winning in January. Uh, we had no idea why that was. Happened to be true. There, there are other, other funny things that happened in January. That seems to have sort of died out over time after academics started writing about it, kind of shifted around. Um, but this loser effect, or more general versions of it is still quite robust. It's called the value effect. Um, now, what were the, 
there was an army, I was at Cornell when this was written, there was an army of University of Chicago finance graduate students put to work to find our programming error. Because it was known this cannot possibly be true. So what mistake did we make? Well, it turns out de Bont, uh, bless his heart, um, doesn't make programming errors. Uh, he didn't even, he didn't trust uh, canned regression programs. He, so he would write them himself to check to make sure the canned programs uh, were working right. So here are the complaints. Uh, the first is that these losers must somehow be riskier than the winners. Because otherwise, why are they outperforming? So uh, uh, now, if, if the standard measure of risk at this time was something called beta. I won't go into what that is. Uh, it's covariance with the market, essentially. The losers actually had lower betas than the winners. So that couldn't have been it. Uh, but then people started getting creative in how they measured beta, and if you measure beta afterwards, well, a big argument ensued. Uh, all I can say is no one has ever found a way in which these losers are actually riskier than the winners. But in some metaphysical sense, if you want to call them riskier, you're welcome to. Um, then they pointed out that the, the losers were smaller, and there's a well-known phenomena that smaller stocks outperform bigger stocks. Now, what's true is they had become smaller. They didn't start out that small, but if you're the 50 worst performing stocks over a five-year period, you've really shrunk. And in any case, finance has absolutely no theory about why portfolios of small firms should do worse than big firms. So this is really just shifting the anomaly from one place to another. Um, so I'm going to spare you the 30 years of arguing about this um, and move on uh, to the other dimension of market efficiency, uh, the price is right. Uh, now, he, the idea here is that uh, in an efficient market, prices are equal to the intrinsic value of the asset. So that, that's the second pillar of efficient market theory. And in some ways, it's an easier one to defend than uh, the first one uh, because most of the time it's not testable. And that's handy if you want to defend a theory, is to make it untestable. Um, and it's untestable because you don't know intrinsic value. Stocks don't come with labels saying, here's my intrinsic value. So you need to be clever to figure out how to test this. So um, I had a colleague who's clever, uh, a guy called Owen Lamont, uh, one of my colleagues at Chicago. And here's the story we investigated. There was a company in Silicon Valley in the 1990s. And if you remember back to the 1990s, stock market was going up very fast. Tech companies were doubling every few weeks. And uh, it was a, an exciting time to be a stock on the NASDAQ. 
But 3Com, which owned Palm Pilots, which you can think of as a very clunky version of an iPhone that doesn't make calls, but it was thought to be quite sexy at the time, um, 3Com is being ignored. Um, so here's a plot of 3Com stock price during this period. Here's the summer of 1999, which was a very exciting time for NASDAQ stocks, but not for 3Com. Um, so 3Com decides we need to unleash value. And how are we going to do that? We're going to spin off Palm and make it its own company. Now, of course, in an efficient market, it would make no difference whether Palm is inside of 3Com or outside. However, you can see the market really liked this idea. So they announce here that they're going to spin off Palm and their stock price jumps from about 42 to 100. And as the IPO of Palm gets nearer and nearer, 3Com is racing up. So here are the details of the spinoff. The details are important. Um, th this second bullet is the crucial number. Each 3Com shareholder gets 1.5 shares of Palm. Okay? Now, with my high-powered mathematics, I'm able to derive the following inequality. That that means that 3Com's share price must be equal or greater than 1.5 Palm because every 3Com shareholder got one and a half shares of Palm. Okay? On the first day of trading, the market goes crazy over Palm. At one point, the price is as high as 165. It ends up settling the day at $95 a share. Now, if you multiply 95 by 1.5, you get 142. Remember, 3Com was selling for 100, so that means it should go up by 42%. Actually, it fell. It fell by 20%. And at the close of the market, the market was valuing 3Com, the stub, meaning its value less its interest in Palm, at minus $23 billion. Now, there's a really basic principle of finance, which is asset prices cannot be negative. Right? Because you can throw them away. Um, but here we go, minus $23 billion. That's fairly negative. Here's a plot. This is so 3Com stub was worth minus $60 a share at the end of that day. Uh, some sanity came in the next day. It was only worth minus $38 a share. And then it lasted for several months. Finally, at the IPO, when Palm was released, 3Com was worth some positive amount, which of course it had to be. It couldn't be worth a negative amount once it started trading. Okay, so uh, where does this leave us? Uh, we're more like Homer economicus than Homo economicus. And markets are not perfect. So what does that mean for government? Does that mean that we should have governments come in and run everything? 
should we abandon markets and uh, adopt Soviet-style systems? Well, you can guess my answer to that is no, and in part because of the realization that governments are run by humans too. So, and in fact, running an economy is an impossibly complicated task. So, what the role of government should be is an interesting problem with not an obvious answer, and that, of course, is uh, what Cass and I try to address in our book. I should say Cass is probably the most distinguished constitutional law professor of his era, um, a great friend, and now is, uh, well, in the media they call him the regulation czar. Um, his official title is he's the director of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And so I call him the nudger-in-chief. Uh, so when we set out to write this book, Cass likes to write books. I had never really written a book. I had stapled a couple um, co collections of papers. Uh, have we mentioned my laziness? Yeah, I think that's come up. So uh, when we wrote this book, uh, we had two goals. Uh, we called them, when we were talking among ourselves, the ambitious goal and the ridiculously ambitious goal. So the ambitious goal was to take uh, the work I and my corrupted young friends have been doing for 30 years or so and bring it to a lay audience and see what it might have to say about public policy. And so that was the ambitious goal. The ridiculously ambitious goal was to try to create a political framework that was neither left nor right. And now in the US that is a ridiculously uh, ridiculous goal. Um, and Glenn Beck has decided that Cass Sunstein is the most dangerous man in America. Uh, quite an honor, I think, for Cass, but uh, uh, I don't, Glenn Beck doesn't know much about me, so <laughs> if he knew, he would realize I'm more dangerous inherently, but Cass has a more dangerous job. But, um, but in other countries, there's some hope that um, this approach that I'm going to talk to you about uh, isn't really ideological. So um, the Conservative Party in the UK um, has, David Cameron read the book and one summer assigned it to all the Tory uh, MPs and uh, they recently created what is known in number 10 as the Nudge Unit. Uh, the official name is the Behavioral Insight Team. And um, I'm an advisor to that group. And our charge is to think of ways of using behavioral science to improve whatever government is doing. Uh, now, it is fair to say that the uh, Conservative Party in the UK is not very different from the Democratic Party in the US. But uh, I'm just back from Korea where the prime minister there is a conservative by any definition. He also assigned the book to his cabinet. And so there is some hope, we think, 
that what I'm about to tell you about could be an idea that either party could take on. So what is that idea? It comes with a really snappy name, libertarian paternalism. Now, as you know, both of those words are unpopular in this country. Um, Libertarians are thought to be crazy people who live in Montana and Hyde Park, uh, uh, a neighborhood in Chicago. But they're loved compared to paternalists who are reviled everywhere, possibly even in Berkeley. So our idea was to take these two hated, contradictory words and combine them. It's a winner. So um, now here's the way we do that. Uh, By libertarian, what we mean simply is choice preserving. So we never want to tell anybody what they have to do. By paternalism, we simply mean um, that we care about people's outcomes as defined by themselves. So that's what we want to do. And uh, how do we achieve this? We achieve it with something we call choice architecture. So who is a choice architect? A choice architect is anyone who designs the environment in which we choose. So uh, consider uh, if you go to a restaurant, the chef has decided what food items uh, he or she will prepare, but there's someone who gets to put that on a piece of paper um, and in in some order. So... Uh, the place we went to lunch today, uh, what's it called? Gather, very nice restaurant. Um, there were three categories of things. There were salads, there were pizzas, and there were sandwiches. Uh, maybe there was a fourth one. Um, now, it needn't be grouped in that way, but they were. And then within each category, there's some order. Somebody's deciding that. Well, that person is the choice architect. Now, so what? Well, here's the most important point I'm going to make today. There's no alternative to choice architecture. Sometimes people accuse Cass and I of meddling. The point I want you to leave with today is it's impossible not to meddle. So here's the example we used to start the book. Suppose that the director of school cafeterias in Berkeley discovers, through experimentation, that the order in which the food is displayed influences what the kids eat. So, if the tofu is in front of the yogurt, then more people will take it than the other way around. I assume those are the only two things that are served (laughs) at the the, uh, Berkeley School Cafeteria. Now, now, okay, so armed, armed with that information, what, what should she do? How should she arrange the food? Well, one choice would be to arrange the food in such a way as to make the kids healthy and happy. So somehow defined, make the kids best off. Okay, that's one option. She could try to make the kids fatter. 
she could fool herself into thinking she can avoid choice architecture by arranging the food at random. But of course, that's just going to create havoc. Imagine if all the ingredients in the salad bar are scattered all around the room. So the lettuce is over there, and the tomatoes over here, and the dressings are back there. Right? The line will come to a complete stop. Um, or she could follow the Illinois state of Illinois model and feature the items for which she gets the largest bribes. But um, again, the point I want to make is she must choose something. It's impossible not to meddle. So given that, we argue, why not pick something good? Now, um, this was a hypothetical example. right? This came out of my head, this school cafeteria. There's no study that I knew of. It just made sense to me that that would be true. Uh, thanks to Brian Wansink, uh, the author of a brilliant book called Mindless Eating, is, this hypothetical example is now true. Um, so he's doing experiments in school cafeterias exactly rearranging the food. So in one, one school, they've increased the salad uptake just by moving the salad bar. In another school, they've increased the fruit consumption by putting the fruit in a nicer display. And if you're interested in this, look at Brian Wansink's um, uh, website or go to smarterlunchrooms.org. They just got a million-dollar grant uh, from the government to uh, continue this work. Now, uh, so that's one sort of highbrow nudge. Uh, here's a more famous one. Now, th this is a picture of the urinal in Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. You, you can see if you sort of squint, there's something in there. Uh, so I have a blow-up of that. So some genius decided that if you etch the image of a housefly in the urinals, then, well, see, I, now I have to explain this, that, you know, Man, we have a lot on our minds, you know? <laughs> you know, the, the Giants have a big game tonight. Uh, who are we going to start in our fantasy football league team? So while we're taking care of our business, you know, we, we're thinking about other things. But, and I'm sure there's an evolutionary explanation for what I'm about to say. If you give us a target, we will aim. So, and here, here's hard data. Uh, spillage has been reduced by... I don't know the empirical methods on this, but uh, we're going to just take that as a given. Um, now, this is like a paragraph in our book, but it's probably had thousands of newspaper articles written about it. But, uh, so we have a 
a chapter on choice architecture that I don't have time to go into, and we detail six principles of good choice architecture. Uh, I'm, today I'm going to just talk about defaults. So um, here's one example that we're working on in the UK. Uh, in, in the US, in most states, if you want to donate your organs, should you uh, have a sudden accident, um, you have to take some action. You have to fill out some form or do something. So it's an opt-in system. In some countries in Europe, um, most notably Spain, uh, they have an opt-out system that they call presumed consent. And the way that works is you are presumed to give your consent unless you do something. Now, the Labour government in the UK wanted to switch from the opt-in system to, an opt to presumed consent, but there was a big fuss made. Um, some people objected to someone else presuming something about their body parts. And so um, what, what I'm urging the government to do, and I think what they may do, is adopt what I call prompted choice. Now, in the book we refer to this as mandated choice. I've learned a lot about politics in the last two years. Uh, prompted choice is exactly the same policy, but sounds better. So we call it prompted choice. Um, this is actually something the state of Illinois does right. When you go to get your driver's license renewed, the last question the clerk at the DMV asks you is, would you like to be an organ donor, yes or no? Now, I called it mandated choice. Somebody wrote a newspaper article about this, and the uh, Secretary of State in Illinois said, no, we don't have that. So I got a call from the reporter. The state claims they don't have it. I, said, you know, I don't know what he's talking about. I've been there. I know. It turns out he just didn't like mandated. He says, we don't force anybody to do anything. So technically, he's right. If, if you get up to the front of the line and they say, do you want to be a donor or not, and you stand there, mum, <laughs> they will check no and give you your driver's license. So that's why we now call it prompted choice. Uh, and, uh, and that's the model I think uh, we'll probably adopt in the UK. Now, I wrote a, an article about this in the New York Times, where I have an occasional column. Um, and I said that Steve Jobs, who had just recently gotten a liver transplant, should take it upon himself to make it as easy to donate your organs as it is to download an app on an iPhone. Two weeks later, there was an app. It, Steve Jobs had nothing to do with it. Somebody read the article, thought it was a good idea. If you have an iPhone, you can download Donate Lives, and sign up to be an organ donor, and maybe we can save a few lives today. Now, uh, another domain in which default options has proven to be very powerful is in 401k plans. Uh, many 401k plans, participants never get around to signing up. They procrastinate. So what... In a normal plan, if you want to join the, the plan, you get a big pile of forms to fill out. You have to fill those out. If you don't, you're not in. Uh, under the alternative, 
which is called automatic enrollment. You get that big pile of forms, and the first page says, if you don't fill out these forms, we're going to enroll you at this saving rate and in this investment plan. Well, that jumps enrollments immediately to over 90% in every firm that's tried it. And importantly, very few people wake up a few years later and say, oh my God, I'm saving, what a stupid idea, and drop out. <laughs> now, the, the downside of automatic enrollment is that whatever you make as the default, many people will take. And so many companies make the default saving rate quite low and uh, the default investment very conservative. So um, we advise now firms to have a more sensible default plan like something that rebalances the portfolio automatically and adjusts it over time. And uh, Shlomo Benartzi, another one of my students and I have created a program that we call Save More Tomorrow to solve the saving rate problem. And what we do is we invite participants to sign up for a program where they save more later. And the reason for that is that we all have more self-control in the future than now. So many of us are planning diets starting next month. including me. Uh, So we give them the option of saving more in a few months when they get their next raise because we want to mitigate against loss aversion so they never see their pay go down. In the first company that adopted this, we tripled saving rates in less than three years. Uh, That was a special case where we went around to each employee with a, a laptop and sort of led them by the hand, sign-up rates are, uh, have never been that high in other less costly implementations. But everywhere, it's now available in thousands of companies uh, serving millions of employees. And wherever it works, the people who get into it stick, and their saving rates go up. Now, I'm going to switch to... Uh, an idea that's less sexy, but I think uh, is getting some traction uh, in Washington and elsewhere, uh, is a very geeky idea. Um, And the idea is a simple one. Wherever the government has a required disclosure rule, they would supplement that with an electronic disclosure. So, uh, and the disclosure where applicable would have two kinds of information, what about prices and what about uses. So let let me explain how this might work for uh, wireless calling plans, which is very relevant because the FCC is seriously thinking about adopting some version of this idea. So the idea would be once a year you would get an email from your uh, mobile calling plan that would have essentially a spreadsheet attached to it, and it would, have, uh, a, it would have data on every way in which you used your phone that incurred a charge. So how many text messages, how many mega whatevers of things you've downloaded. And, um, 
uh, it would, and how many Simpsons episodes you've downloaded. And, um, and then the second would be a list of all the ways they can charge you for things. Now, it's not that we think anyone would ever look at that file. What we think is that, what we know is, because these websites already exist, is that with one click, you would be able to upload that to a website that would then turn you into an econ. And it would tell you, well, based on the way you use your smartphone, we suggest that you switch to the following plan or the following provider or so forth. We, we think we should do this with credit cards, with mortgages. You know those 30 pages of forms you have to fill out when you get a mortgage that no one ever reads, including the, we now know, the people foreclosing on those mortgages. Uh, again, we think that you ought to get a file when you apply for a mortgage that you could upload to mortgagesearcher.com, and it would tell you, well, do you notice that this mortgage rate doubles in two years? Or there's a $25,000 prepayment penalty? Or all the other stuff in the fine print that nobody ever bothers to read? So um, what we think is that in many cases, this kind of disclosure can be an alternative to heavy-handed regulation. And the reason is you just are trying to make the consumers smarter and the markets work better. Um, and it eliminates the fruitless game of constantly thinking up new regulations that the firms are thinking up ways to getting around. And so I would urge Elizabeth Warren to think very hard about this approach to dealing with the new Consumer Finance Protection Agency. Um, it also should allow for innovation because if you want to introduce a new product, you just need a new line on this electronic form, which is easy to accommodate. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is the financial crisis and some interesting parallels I've drawn between the financial crisis and the oil spill we had in the Gulf of Mexico. And I want to suggest that three ingredients create a toxic recipe. Uh, the three ingredients are statistically rare events, um, in Taleb's language, black swans, complex technologies that are called black boxes, and counterparty risk, meaning you have to do business with somebody else and you're not quite sure what they're doing. So about black swans, um, in financial markets, we keep observing things that the theory tells us can't happen. So uh, behavioral finance got a big boost on October 19, 1987, when stock prices fell 20 to 30% in a single day all around the world on a day with absolutely no news. The only news was that stock prices were falling all around the world, one country after another as the stock markets opened. Uh, there was no, it wasn't that 
10 heads of state died in a bomb at the UN or that a war was breaking out in the Middle East. Nothing happened. The rest of that week had two of the biggest up days and another of the biggest down days. Again, in a week that the only news was that the market was going crazy. Uh, We've had more of those happening every few years. Uh, The internet bubble where we created and destroyed $7 trillion of wealth. Uh, and most recently, the financial crisis. Now, uh, people will tell you these are 10 sigma events, or 15 sigma events. We know we can't get those. It's, you know, maybe once every 100 million lifetimes. So uh, what's going on? At some point, when a lot of these events keep happening, you have to decide you have the wrong model. Now, there's a wonderful book I wish you could all read. Uh, I just recently gave a lecture about this at Yale. The the author of this book was a law professor called Arthur Leff. The book's called Swindling and Selling. It's been out of print for 30 years, although you can find it on Amazon. He talks about all the great cons and uh, about Ponzi schemes, and he, he introduces the notion of the gray box. And so what, the theme of the book is, for every con, the con man has to explain the answers to two questions. Where is the wealth coming from, and why are you willing to share it with me? And as this passage says, in a Ponzi scheme... The original Ponzi had an arbitrage opportunity. He claimed he had figured out a way of investing depreciated European currencies in international postage coupons and making a killing. Um, So all Ponziers since have some mechanism that they describe. And as Leff says, the mechanism need not be very plausible upon reflection, but it must be possible, publicizable, and complicated. It cannot be a black box, but it cannot be transparent. It needs to be a gray box, somewhat understandable, but not so much that it can be seen through. Now, why is that? Gray box must be believable and unbelievable at the same time. It has to be understandable that some people won't want it. That's why you're getting the deal. Now, think about uh, Wall Street. First, the financial crisis. The most perceptive article and all that's been written about the financial crisis was written by a New New Yorker food writer called Calvin Trillin. And Trillin describes an imaginary scene at an east side bar where he goes into the bar and meets an elderly gentleman, well-dressed, who offers to explain the financial crisis to him. He says he, he can do it in one sentence. Okay, what's that? He says, 
smart people started working on Wall Street. So, okay, well, I'm not sure I get that. So he says, well, back when I was in school, only the C students went to Wall Street. The A and B students wouldn't touch Wall Street. They went into, you know, good careers like law or medicine. But then in the 80s, people started making a lot of money on Wall Street, and all of a sudden, the brightest, smartest kids from all the best colleges flocked to Wall Street where they were making millions. So Mr. Cholin says, okay, so far so good. I don't see what the problem is. He says, yes, but who are all those smart kids working for? The guys from my generation the C students. Now, I think that story is so perceptive because it's, we've seen after the fact that many CEOs just didn't understand what was going on. Even Bob Rubin, the most respected, uh, one of the most respected men on Wall Street, former Secretary of the Treasury, admitted that he had never heard the phrase liquidity put until Citicorp had lost $50 billion selling liquidity puts. And Bernie Madoff, who sold $65 billion worth of gray boxes, how did he sell them? He had some story, that a story that any finance professor with five, after five minutes would say, this is not possible for you to make money doing this. Um, why did people put the money in? They thought it was front-running. Now, front-running means he had a trading company, a legitimate, presumably legitimate trading company. What front-running means is, suppose Matthew calls his broker and decides to buy 100,000 shares of IBM. And the broker quickly buys 100,000 shares for himself first. That drives up the price. He sells those to Matthew. So that's a pretty sure way of making a little money each time you trade. It's illegal, but that's what many of the investors and the feeder funds thought Madoff was doing. And they thought, this is fine because he's stealing from someone else and giving the money to me. Uh, which constitutes ethics these days. <laughs> now, here's some facts about the SEC. They have 1,400 lawyers, 25 economists, and I don't know how many hackers. Um, I am pretty sure that if they could clone uh, Salander and put her in the SEC, um, that would, could replace several hundred lawyers uh, and probably most of the economists. Uh, but it, it, the SEC was a job that was used to be suitable for a, an agency of lawyers, but the SEC investigated Madoff many times, couldn't find anything wrong with it. Finally, counterparty risk, I'll just quote uh, Mr. Greenspan. In fact, I'll let you read that while I get a sip of water. Okay, now, 
the oil spill. Uh, Tony Hayward said this oil spill was a month one in a million chance. Now, whenever somebody says that, you have a pretty good idea that was not a precise calculation. Uh, but if you look at the numbers, there are 15,000 wells in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, in 11 cases, there was an accident in which they had to use the um, blowout preventer. And the blowout preventer worked 45% of the time. That was their fail-safe mechanism. It works less than half the time. And if, you th if what he meant by one in a million was one in a million per year per well, you can see over a period of time we're going to get some spills. Uh, again, the regulators are not used to dealing with oil wells that are a mile down. So one of the inspectors said, you know, we don't really have the capability of doing this. And counterparty risks... On the day of the accident, of the 126 people on the rig, only eight worked for BP. So what are we going to do about this? Well, one trap is to conclude that we should give lots of power to regulators. But remember, uh, regulators are human too, and it's unlikely that if the CEOs didn't understand what was going on in the company, that some bureaucrat will be able to, no matter how good the bureaucrat is. So one goal, I think, should be to increase transparency, which will allow more people to get involved. So the rating agencies let us down. I think with more disclosure, we wouldn't have needed the rating agencies. If every mortgage-backed security had all the data on every mortgage, which was known to them and was possible to get if you paid enough money, if that was all available just like in our electronic disclosure, then any geek could have become a rating agency. And in some cases, disclosure will regulate risks to the own firm. Another possibility is to impose taxes on those who impose risks. So this is a topic of much discussion, bank regulation. It could also be for oil drillers. The problem with this is, A, knowing how to measure the risk. Is it one in a million? What is it? Bankers would have told us there was no chance of this sort of breakdown. Um, Another approach could be to require them to have insurance, which shifts some of the risk from the government to the insurer, but of course we can't be sure whether the insurance companies are fully up to the job. So, let me conclude. Our, our world is getting increasingly complex, but we're not getting any smarter. Neither the private sector nor the public sector seems to be up to the job of dealing with this complexity. Uh, to paraphrase something Larry Summers said about financial regulation, we need regulations that don't require anybody to get any smarter. And by that, what he meant was neither the consumers nor the regulators. 
because we can't hope that the next round of regulators will be smarter than the last round. They're going to be humans, too. So I'll offer two rules. Start with electronic disclosure, and don't ban and mandate, just nudge. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.